0: Welcome to CTO Confessions with TC Gill. Brought to you by IT Labs.
1: Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This episode of CTO Confessions is brought to you by the one and only IT Labs, providing technology leaders with purpose-driven development teams for high performance, innovation and productivity. Well, what more could you want? Please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off your kitchen shelf. And your host today is moi, T.C. Gill, IT Lab's Chief Talking Officer, CTO. And I'm speaking from the UK, London, the land of fish and chips. And in this episode, we are going to talk about teching up the construction industry, lessons from a construction industry CTO. And to talk to us about that, is our guest, Jeff Olin, Vice President of Technology at Homesphere, an interesting company, if I may say so. It works in the building industry, helping builders get rebates. It's not something that we have here in the UK, but apparently it's a big thing in the US. He's going to talk to us about how the construction industry is picking up the technology pace and how it can improve its bottom line. Also creating architectures, That make it easy to maintain and deliver customer-centric outcomes. Sounds like a pretty good endeavour. And finally, we're also going to cover leading as a CTO or a tech leader with an agile mindset. So Jeff is passionate about the industry that he works in and how it can innovate. So together with him, we're going to explore his tech mind on what's on the horizon and how systems can be improved. Let's greet our guest from the heart of America, Denver. So hello, Jeff. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, Thank you for offering your time to share your insights and your wisdom. Um, Would you like to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? What do you do?
0: Well, I'm currently vice president of technology for a company called Homesphere and uh, Homesphere is in the construction business actually. And we work with both building product manufacturers as well as builders. And we help the relationship between those two groups in order to help the the manufacturers sell more products and help the builders get the products they need and get them in a cost-efficient way. So that's the business that we're in. Uh, One of our key features is a rebate program where we offer the manufacturers the service to provide rebates to thousands of builders so that they can just write one check. And we also offer the service to builders so that they can get one check for rebates from multiple manufacturers. In my specific role, I own all of technology for the company. So that is primarily software development as we're creating products uh, for the builders and the manufacturers. But yeah. I also have responsibility for other technology in the company, including our desktop support and networks and internal business systems. So right. we're a relatively small company, so it, yeah. I'm able to do that as one person.
1: Many hats. Many hats. Yes. Of one person. Hats. Yes. Yeah. Right. I, I find it quite interesting in terms of the construction industry, having uh, a, a presence in a kind of technology form. I mean, obviously, all companies have technology in them, but it's uh, quite intriguing to see how a company in the construction industry is a tech based company.
0: Well, that's true. Technology is coming late to the construction industry. There are a lot of people, a lot of players in the industry who are not leveraging technology as much as they can they are more focused in on actually using their hands to to build the buildings to build the homes and technology is kind of a a second thought that's uh not true for all construction concerns but uh, there is a tremendous opportunity in the conducting in the construction industry to digitize and and create more digital solutions, more technology solutions. And in fact, uh, compared to a lot of under other industries, uh, one could consider the construction industry a little behind in terms of technology.
1: Yes, I, I've, I have heard that. And, and I have to confess, um, when we were kind of preparing to do this interview with yourself, you know, um, construction industry, and, and, uh, and, Kind of data. I mean, it's a lot of data that you're collecting as well. You know, in terms of uh, trends and 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 where where particular services and products kind of go.
0: Definitely, we process over a quarter of a million home closings a year, and wow. we have lots of interesting information about those closings, about the products that are being used in those home completions and the uh, builders who have built them and their locations etc cetera, etc cetera. so it makes for a rich database that, that can be used for all kinds of different applications
1: yeah yeah I, I imagine that that kind of data is quite useful for you know everything from kind of uh, water supply companies electricity companies to you know where there's kind of activity in terms of building uh, governments as well maybe
0: That's absolutely true. There are lots of different ways that the data could be used all the way from financial analysis to determine trends in the construction industry, because there's big business, there's, there's billions of dollars in the construction industry. And if you can forecast that accurately, then uh, there's all kinds of of positive financial applications, but also uh, municipalities, they may want to know how how rapidly construction is occurring in a particular area, so they can staff appropriately, that they can understand the impact to uh, permitting or 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 trash removal or road construction, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So, from a municipality, from a municipal perspective, there's a number of possibilities, and uh, you know, the construction industry themselves wants to be more efficient in terms of building in order to improve their profits. So there's a third area and there there are many other ways that the data could be used to uh, provide benefits.
1: Yeah. And and in terms of that data, how is it collected and stored? Where, where does that data come from?
0: So our solution is a software as a service solution. And we provide a portal for manufacturers and a portal for builders and when the builders have completed a home they submit the data about that home through the portal or uh you know they send it to us and we collect it and aggregate it and we use it then to determine the appropriate uh rebate request to the manufacturers right and once we get that money we turn around and then distribute it to the builders yeah. but they're providing that information And sometimes there are some requirements that the manufacturers have uh, that help uh, add additional data into the data set um, in order to validate that that the product has actually been used in their home that they've completed. So the process to collect the data is primarily through the builders, but we also have uh, salespeople across the company. I'm sorry, across the country. Yep. And uh, sometimes they facilitate the collection of data as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can imagine this stuff is um, a lot of it, uh, but also kind of uh, little nuggets of gold kind of buried in there in terms of interpreting that data. And, um, and and in terms of interpreting that data then, obviously you use it for the kind of rebate program, which I imagine is a an algorithm of sort, you know. Um, yeah. uh, in terms of finding trends and, and kind of deeper... Uh, knowledge and understanding. Is is that something that you do?
0: Yes, we do. Um, There is a lot more work that we can do in order to uh, uh, extract analytic information from that data, but we definitely do some of that. We create a a builder's report that comes out regularly, and uh, we're also making that data available to our customers, particularly the manufacturers, because they're the ones that are most... Uh, interested in, and, mm. and a lot of it has to do directly with their with their products. And uh, we also so that they have the data so that they can do some analytics on it as well. Yeah, and there's a lot of a lot of ways that they can do that to recommend where their where their salespeople go in terms of of high likelihood buyers that maybe they don't have currently, and we provide information about. The buyers' or the builders' locations, the kind of homes they're building, the kind of products they use, et cetera, in order to help the manufacturers uh, target new customers more efficiently and effectively.
1: Wow, excellent. And um, I I guess the kind of words AI and and machine learning kind of come in. Is there any kind of particular way in which you actually do that?
0: So that's uh, an area we're investigating right now. Mm. Uh, You know, AI has a particular definition around it. Mm. And if you follow that specific definition, uh, we aren't quite there yet, but it is something that we're absolutely looking at investigating, thinking about because uh, with the data that we have, there's all kinds of interesting possibilities.
1: Yeah, I can imagine. Uh, and, uh, you know, we live in a, a, um, an age of, of data swimming around everywhere. And what I find intriguing when you read uh, various kind of uh, studies, on large data is where they pick up patterns, which couldn't really be seen, you know, uh, little kind of trends and even kind of predictions as to where, where things are kind of heading. So uh, that's, that's interesting. And in terms of them, um, so you're kind of servicing these kind of two, two ends of the manufacturers that, that are providing products and services. Uh, and then the builders, I imagine the tool that you've developed. Um, I mean, it's got different use cases at different ends of the kind of spectrum, you know, um, uh, is that some so in terms of that usability, is this something that you uh, have spent a lot of time on trying to uh, fine tune and, and get right to make it easy?
0: Yes. Yes, it is. That's an interesting question. It makes me want to respond in multiple ways. <laughs> yeah. So the, the first area is that it it uh, we definitely do have two separate products, uh, one for Builders and one for manufacturers because they are very different use cases. What's interesting, though, is that we're using a lot of the same kind of data for both. So what we've done is we've migrated away from a legacy product that was created literally 20 years ago. It was created in 1999 and 2000, and we've created a solution, which is um, uh, a microservice based solution. So we have an architecture which is highly flexible. And uh, the, the approach has served us very well. Basically, we have created a suite of microservices for closing and for builder and for manufacturer and for employee and for home and for email, you know, et cetera, et cetera. We have a, you know, 15 to 20 plus microservices using a common template for services. And then we have a common UI solution that sits on top of that. Right. Because we want to have the same kind of, of look and feel for both the builders and the manufacturers because we don't want to have to reinvent that. Right. Why create something totally different in terms of color combination, etc., cetera, uh, navigation, uh, uh, HTML templates, et cetera. So yeah. we are gaining economies of scale by using the same structures, templates, and constructs for both for Both uh, portal solutions, yeah. um, even though the actual functionality is different, yeah. Um, but there is functionality which is duplicated or very similar between the between the building uh, the builder's solution and the manufacturer's solution, and we can reuse the functionality in the microservices, and in that way, we are um, efficiently implementing software solutions that can be reused by both of those uh, user groups.
1: Wow,
0: So um, that architecture has served us very well. And with the microservices uh, implementation, we have our databases uh, aligned with each microservice. And then we also have an external uh, data warehouse where we've aggregated the data for doing uh, large scale data analysis, et cetera. And then finally we have an enterprise service bus in our architecture, which we use to pass information uh, within uh, some of the services, but also as an integration point for third party tools so that we have kind of a loosely coupled system, third party tool like Salesforce, which is something Uh, that our our salespeople use. There's information in the Salesforce, arena that we want to flow over into the portals used by the builders and the manufacturers and vice versa. By having this enterprise service bus, we have a logical integration point and we can track the information flowing back and forth through systems, uh, which helps us with debugging and helps us separate these concerns so that if we ever needed to replace that system, we could. Yes, uh, we also have another third-party solution that we use, uh, Microsoft Dynamics for accounting, yep. and that too goes through the service bus. So the architecture um, is really a you know a 21st century solution, yep. and um, it meets our needs very well in terms of uh, providing the flexibility that we need to grow things, but grow things in a very efficient way and. Use and reuse the reuse. solutions we
1: implement. Yeah, I love this. So I, I can imagine the um, that kind of journey from this kind of monolith that you, this kind of big, huge kind of blob of of application was. Uh, first of all, I mean, actually, rather than making assumptions, I mean, what was it like trying to maintain a uh, that old architecture, the,
0: that blob? So it was very difficult. And we still have some stuff running on that old monolithic solution. Um, we're in the process of migrating everything out of there. It's been uh, you know, an evolutionary process. We didn't do a flash cut at all. Yeah. Um, that old solution used to be the one for builders and for manufacturers and for all of in- our internal users as right. well. Wow. Now we've moved all of our builders off of it, all of our manufacturers off of it. We've created a, another solution called the Homesphere Hub which is for internal users but It allows them to get access to both of our products yes. uh, both our manufacturer products and and, uh, and builder products but we have to finish moving stuff from the legacy solution onto the Homesphere Hub in order to be completely off of it Right. I do want to mention one other thing that I think would be of interest to Technologists, And we made the decision to have an internal solution, which allowed our internal people to access the portals for all builders, regardless of what customer they choose. So from our internal application, you put in the manufacturer name and you can go to the manufacturer's portal and see exactly what they're seeing. We've done the same thing with our builders. You put in the builder name as an internal user, and it will take you to the builder's portal so that you can see exactly what the builder is seeing. This is extremely powerful for our internal users. Number one, when they get a call from a customer, they can easily access exactly what that uh, customer is seeing. Right. And they can provide much more effective support that way yes it used to be before we could do that if you wanted to see customer ABC you needed to have a specific log on to ABC's portal and right. if you wanted to see XYZ's information you had to have a specific log on to XYZ's <laughs> yes right um, so and with you know 2700 builders and and you know 50 to 60 or more uh, manufacturers nobody's going to have the passwords to all of those. Mm. So this ability to see what the customers are seeing is extremely powerful from a support perspective.
1: Yeah, imagine.
0: It has another benefit in that internal users now, um, employees of the company, can easily see the products. Mm. And when they can easily see the products, they learn them better, know them better, access them more often. If you had to go back and look at a cheat sheet uh, to find out what the username and password was for a specific application out of, you know, 2,700 builders, you know, that's a whole lot of work. Yeah. And we've made it very easy by having our active directory login be the logon that gets us to this internal application, allowing us to access our customers portals. Wow. And, um, because it's Active Directory once they log into their machines it makes it very easy for them to go there Yeah, this is a way of not only giving better service to our customers but also enriching our internal people's uh, knowledge of our products as well as making their jobs easier Yeah, so it was a very powerful thing and I mention it because this kind of tool has kind of general applicability to other kinds of industries and And software solutions. And um, I suggest it to open the minds of of other technology leaders that they might want to offer something like that to their internal employees. Beautiful. I do want to mention one other thing, though. It's not like we let anybody do anything, we have a permissions and role and permissions model so that we can uh, control who actually does get access and who doesn't. Yeah. because you don't want everybody in the company being able to see everything. Yes. So that, that's a key component. Beautiful. But that internal solution is one that's been very beneficial. And the concept may be useful for for other uh, technology applications also. Yeah I
1: can imagine from a uh, from a user perspective obviously that's helping them get their jobs done but there's uh, the cost of the old way of doing something was probably quite a large financial footprint on the organization sense of efficiency and kind of dollars at the end of the day you know right yes and and, and uh, I'm kind of curious as to what brought up, I mean with hindsight it seems obvious to do this what what brought about that trigger to put something like this in place from a from a technology perspective did it did the idea come from the from your uh, people like yourself or your, or yourself exactly um or was it something that came from the business saying look we, we need to fix this
0: so i think it was a bit of both you know our technology and product teams work very very closely together yeah and uh, you know one of the things that I feel very strongly about is that when product and technology are aligned, everything is much easier. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So so I work very hard to remain in contact, uh, to talk with our product people, to understand the direction they want to go in to discuss that. And our technology team is is quite seasoned, quite experienced. And they provide information to the product team and, of course, vice versa. But I think our, our technology team is strong enough and experienced enough to provide real interesting ideas and feedback to product. Right. And it's really that product-technology interaction which drives innovation in a, in a company. Yeah. Because a product person who's got no technology input to their decisions – Comes up with solutions which are quite difficult to implement. Yeah, and and a technology person who blindly implements exactly what the product team tells them doesn't come up with the best solution either. Yes. it's really that dialogue, that discussion, which uh, creates the best products and drives innovation. And uh, we have uh, we have we spend time doing that. I mean, we call them. I mean, we're an agile shop. We call it grooming, but some of our grooming sessions go long because there's this back and forth and mm-hmm. discussion about how to implement it. What's the best solution? What are the real requirements? Yeah, I see that in the user story, but what is it that's driving the specifics that you put in that user story? Yeah. So that dialogue can be really helpful for achieving the best products.
1: I love it I, I, it kind of resonates with me uh hugely because being an agilist myself uh, i'm a, a big uh fan of business agility where different parts of the organizations are actually collaborating because ultimately it's about the end customer and you know uh, i've been as a as a as an engineer in the past sometimes engineers just deliver what's been kind of asked of them and it's not always what the business needs it's kind of there's there's uh, things have got lost in translation and, and there's not the why isn't there, you know, and, and without the why you can't quite understand where where things going to going or what the intention ultimately is, you know, so it sounds like your organization has got a, a really good dialogue interdepartmental dialogue to kind of collaborate and, and create that uh, and. And in terms of that dialogue and, and the way in which you as a technology leader in your organization, is that something that you've had to bring about or was it just kind of naturally part of the organization's culture?
0: So I, I think it's actually both. I'm You know, the, the agile process, you know, being an agilist, you know, the agile process can really be very, very different depending on a number of factors. I mean, there is the... The the pure solution that you read about in the books, uh, but in every implementation, it's it's always slightly different and really needs to be tweaked for mm-hmm. the current environment. You know, I've led an agile introduction in four or five different companies over the years. Uh, I you know I was, I was very interested in agile very early on. And uh, actually, one of the first implementations uh, I did in, in in the organization I was in, we had three months um, sprints. Oh, wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the idea was to create a more agile solution. I mean, we didn't call it agile back then. Yeah. It was before the term became popular. But trying to break the work up into smaller chunks than a very large solution, and demonstrate to our superiors the progress we had made. And, um, you know, it's the beginning of agile concepts, but um, each environment is a little different and you need to tweak the agile process for those that you have uh, in the process. Yes. If you have a very young team who don't understand things, then maybe you have more product uh, input to tell them exactly what to do, and you have to specify differently. Yes. If you have a more senior team, then there are some, you, you know, the product person can assume some things in, in the user stories. They yeah. don't need to spell everything out. So, the process, and specific to your question, did I have to uh, lead people into this process or, 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 Did they naturally fall into it? And I'm lucky enough to have a very senior team, both from product and development, and they didn't need to be led into this. Developers are speaking up, the product people are listening, the product people bring good ideas to the table, and uh, between the two of us, the two organizations, we end up with some very good products.
1: Yeah, that's right. It, it, it's quite interesting because sometimes I do wonder at, you know, kind of the, the, the philosophy of agile, uh, the, the values and principles to me, they're kind of common sense. Uh, uh, and I think it's because I, um, I kind of naturally think that way. I'm a very collaborative person, like your kind self and, and your organization. Um, so it's, it's interesting how your teams kind of knew that was the right thing to do anyway. You know, it. Um, it just just makes you think why other organizations find it so hard to kind of see that, but I guess it's, it's a habit that they're in, you know? Um, Yeah.
0: Well, the, you know, the personalities on the teams are important. You need to have a a product organization, which is open to input Mm. and you need to have a technology team, which is confident enough and experienced enough to be willing to offer that input. And developers, Depending on your development team, you could have people who are very quiet and and you know listen all the time and, and don't really offer a lot of information. And in those situations, you may need to pull some of that information in the in the discussions. Yes. Um, you know, and again, like I said, if they're young, they may not know uh, they may not have the background to make some suggestions. Mm. So these are some of the subtle things that require tweaking within the agile process. Yes. And and so each implementation is different. And as, and as the people change yes. in, on the Agile teams, you have to tweak the process a little bit. Yes, you, know, you may have a group that knows user interface really well and not so good in the back end. Yes. In those kinds of situations, you've got to, you've got to uh, do more detailed uh, definition of the back end or it could be vice versa. Yeah, um, You would have really strong personalities or quiet personalities. So what I have found is that the general principles of Agile apply and are always effective, but there are little tiny tweaks in the process depending yeah. on the, the people and the demands of the business um, and the pressures that you're under, etc. So they always yeah. change. And-, and the last comment I'll make on that is that the idea of continuous improvement with Agile is how you deal with this. You know, you 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 at the end of your sprint, you have your retrospective, you look to see what can be approved, and you know, your team will tell you, we didn't do this well, we didn't do that well, mm-hmm. this is how we can improve. And if you if you have a two-week sprint and you're making just one change every two weeks to improve, after a years time, you look back, the the, the change is dramatic. But because it's that specific team under those specific requirements, those yeah. little tweaks are the things that they need. They may not be right for another team, but that's what's right for that team. And that's how you can tweak the agile process for maximum effectiveness um, yes. no matter what the team is. So
1: from a, a- from your kind of position cause you're quite your senior in your organization. I find it uh, really interesting that you are talking about the kind of agile kind of, uh, 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 about agile values and principles and, and the kind of implementing things in an agile way. Um, so who does the tweaking? Do
0: you do the tweaking? Uh, so I facilitate the tweaking and uh, you know, the team does the tweaking also. You mm. capture that information, at the end of the retrospective and then the the team has got to buy into it. And, you know, I, and I buy into it as well. And it's kind of a combination in order to, um, make sure it becomes effective because sometimes it's a little extra work to, you know, to make that change. Mm. So they need a, a, a leader or it could be the scrum master as well, keeping them accountable for implementing that change. Yes. And, uh, you know, even with the best intentions, sometimes you don't. Uh, the, the the team doesn't adopt the changes effectively, or they run out of gas, or they forget to do it. Forget, so, yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, having having a scrum master or or a leader or something like that in order to remind them and, and keep them accountable is an important way to make sure that those tweaks have occurred. Yeah. So it's really probably me and the team and the scrum master who who help. Yeah. Make sure that those changes stay in effect.
1: Yeah, it's that's, that's, that's really interesting to see your kind of leadership actually getting down to what I, I refer to it as kind of the coalface, you know, but knowing what's happening there so you can make the kind of adjustments on the larger scale uh, across, you know, the larger parts of the organization, but also uh, being aware of what's kind of going on down there. Um, I just want to take the conversation over to this kind of transition from that kind of monolith. That you had around this, uh, uh, you know, your kind of product for the manufacturers and builders, um, and and the decision to that we need to kind of change this. Um, how did you go about doing that? What what was the kind of first steps? Because that's quite a big thing to start. You know, I, I can imagine you were looking, thinking, where do I start? Where do I start? You know, <laughs> you know.
0: Right. So <clears throat> I came into the company at the beginning of that. As I mentioned, the, the existing product is is many years old. So there was a common understanding that it's something that we needed to be looking at. The product has done great service over the you know the decade plus, or the two decades that it's been in place, yeah. and, and it's still going strong. I mean, even you know a product that was that was well written many years ago, those ones and zeros don't change. Yes.
1: Yeah. <laughs> you yes. Know, they,
0: they, if they meet customer needs still, they'll continue to to, yeah. to grind through all those ones and zeros and get the job done. However, there's a lot of new capabilities uh, that can make the job be even more effective. Mm-hmm. And also having something that is, uh, you know, legacy solution like this, you need to worry about um, supportability and uh you know, when a bug might be found, uh, can it actually be fixed? And do Mm. we have the people who understand that technology, etc. So there's a number of of reasons to move off of it in order to reduce risk. Mm. And I think that that's understood by, you know, not just me as a technology leader, but also the other leaders within the company. So the interest in moving off of that has been around for a while. Mm. You know, there are, Couple of things that you need to have in order to do that effectively, you need to have a team that understands the products and understands the business. Yep. And um, over the last few years, I think we've developed that. And also we understood that, um, a, a good approach is one where we create an architecture that can grow yep. and that, and that is very flexible. So that was a key thing, implementing that architecture. And then moving functionality off of that monolith iteratively. Yeah. You know, a flash cut would have been a very risky approach. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine, yeah. Big bang, yeah. you know? Right. Big bang, it'd be hard on the business. Everybody would have to learn new stuff immediately. You don't know if it works right out of the gate. I mean, it, it would be very disruptive. So mm. it made sense to for it to be more of a an iterative approach, more of a move functionality over. And when you look at that, you say, well, we have three basic user groups, the builders, manufacturers, and internal people. And, uh, you know, we decided to make the product for uh, for the manufacturers and move that off, make the product for builders, move that off. And, you know, the internal people, you know, we have more flexibility with them and don't have to yes. meet the- quite as um, quickly as we do our customers in order to drive business. Yeah. And uh, so you know they are the last group that we're migrating uh, off of the old stuff and onto the new. So the basic concept is we realize that a flash cut is probably not a good solution and we wanted to do it more piecemeal. We wanted to build up the knowledge of the team, uh, during that process, we've done both of those things and are now kind of in the the final phases of, of migrating off of the, uh, old solution, the legacy solution.
1: Yeah. I can imagine that moment where you finally get to turn that switch off, you know? Oh boy. Bye bye baby. (laughs) (laughs) Click. Um, I've just got scenes of um, a space odyssey where Hal is being turned off going, I'm scared.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, (laughs) um... I have to say, there's a lot of great stuff in that old system, but I don't think it's uh, knowledgeable enough or sentient enough to uh, to complain <laughs> and we turn it off.
1: Yeah, that's right. It'd be interesting if it did start speaking back to you. Um, so, um, kind of coming back onto the kind of industry that you're in, this uh, uh, the construction industry. So, where do you see technology going in the construction industry? What's What's on the horizon?
0: So there's lots of, of interesting technology solutions on the horizon. The, the area that we're in is, is more data focused and uh, service focused, and you know, between the builders and the manufacturers, as we've talked about. So there's lots of opportunity to provide builders with more digital tools to help them do their jobs. And and you know, the first place you think of is them sitting at their desks or sitting in their cars, pounding on their laptops or their trucks, I should say, mm. in order to provide information or um, analyze information. And that—that's one concept. Um, another concept is taking that laptop or that tablet um, into the field and being able to use it to capture pictures or videos of the of the site. Yeah, and uh, you know, there's all kinds of things that that can be. Uh, provide benefits in that kind of solution, identifying products, uh, identifying, you know, looking at specific areas of the construction uh, site that, that maybe inspectors want to look at and there might be ways to help there. Yeah. And so that, those are the more uh, uh, simple solutions that immediately think that one immediately thinks of. Based on a computer, there are lots of other interesting technology solutions for construction. Mm -hmm. Right now, there are companies that provide drones that fly around the site and capture site information and send it back to the office. And then the logistics people can say, oh, look, there's not enough lumber or we need the we need uh, the bricks or they put the bricks in the wrong place and if they next time they want to deliver bricks we should have them put over here so that drone footage collects site information It can actually go places if it's a multi-story building go places that people can't necessarily see in order to collect information yeah there are additional tools that builders um, that the, the builders themselves can wear in order to augment their strength. Um, mm. There's also this big tool, for example, for lifting up bricks, cinder blocks, and putting them down so that you have kind of like this big robotic arm that can easily pick things up and it can make the bricklayers layers um, move more quickly because they don't have to lift these heavy things. Yeah. So um, it's another way of providing uh, robotic capabilities to help the construction uh, industry. Yeah. Um so there's uh, and there's also prefabricated builder uh buildings mm. where they get fabricated in a uh in an offsite location and then shipped to the destination and they're just kind of assembled there. Mm. And in that kind of solution, you can um have less loss, you can reuse your loss, you can be more efficient, you know, the the weather and your could be much better where you're assembling things. It could actually be inside, right. and then when you move it to the destination, the construction goes much more quickly. So yeah. prefabrication is another way of of speeding up the the actual construction uh, implementation. Yeah. So um, there's lots of different things that can be done. The last one I wanted to mention was uh, 3D 3D printing. Oh, wow, yes, yes. They're using 3D printers these days, massive 3D printers. They pull them out there on a semi-trailer, they drop them in. They do a 3D printing of the, of the living uh, space, the, the, the home. Mm. And uh, it's not normally a mansion, but um, it's a way of very rapidly creating uh, living uh, spaces mm. um, and very effectively. So there's tons of interesting technology in the construction industry that can be used. And somehow we've got to have that penetrate not only the large builders with lots of money, yep. but the small, medium-sized builders in order to help them make more efficient, make make them more efficient. That's right. Because the construction industry, if you read um, uh, analysis done. Um, The construction industry has not improved in efficiency in the same way as most other businesses over the last 50 years. So there's lots and lots of room for, uh, for technology improvements to make the construction industry more. Efficient,
1: efficient, right? That's right. Because I mean, there's there's all kinds of areas like, as you mentioned, the planning, uh, the products that are available, uh, the speed at which you can order those products as well. I guess there's kind of technology around that. Yeah, it's, it's yeah, it's. I'm kind of curious as to why why this industry's been so slow uh, to kind of bring uh, come to the party, the technology party. Um,
0: mm-hmm. hmm. So there, there are analysts who looked at that. And that is a question that not only you have asked. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And, you know, I think the answer is that you have a number of small and medium-sized people doing these uh, projects, doing building. And, uh, you know, there aren't these large, there aren't as, you know, there are certainly large building builders in the country and in the world. But Mm. there are a lot of mom and pop still is one thing. The other thing is that there's a lot of subcontracting subcontracting that goes along with it. Mm. And uh, as a result of having to include all those different groups in order to get the job done, it just is very difficult to keep all of them logistically in line and implementing effectively. And weather can change things and supply can change things. So there's lots of different variables and you know, building houses is an art form. Really. Yes,
1: absolutely. Yeah, I can imagine. Um, we've only had a small extension done here on the house, and that, that was a job and a half, to be honest. <laughs> yeah. oh, i will be all right. It'll be easy. Nah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, this is this is great stuff, and it's really interesting to kind of hear about the the future of technology um, and and where things are going. Um, I'd like to kind of close on a, a maybe a kind of nugget of gold from you, you know, Jeff, uh, around. Um, what, what would what would be the kind of key takeaway to kind of the, the tech leaders out there from another tech leader? What would you like to offer them?
0: <clears throat> well, that's a wide open question. And I guess <laughs> my, my best answer, if somebody asked me, what's the essence of my technology leadership? I would say that um, I, I look for my team members to be open with me and I'm open with them. And I want them to be involved in the technology solutions that they are implementing. I want them to, I want their ideas to come alive. I want to listen to those ideas. And if, and if they have come up with an idea that I can embrace, they have skin in the game yeah. and that helps them want to implement successfully and efficiently So I am constantly looking for ideas and suggestions from my team members, trying to embrace those approaches and ideas and let them run with it. And that makes for uh, a team which is energized, excited and wanting to complete the work to the best of their ability because it was their idea.
1: Mm, that's right that's beautiful and it kind of speaks very much to the kind of the agile philosophy again um which is is about creating uh, self-organizing um you know autonomous teams with with a level of autonomy obviously being led um and that kind of aliveness in creativity and uh and and ownership, you know, responsibility. So that's great. So it's been wonderful speaking to you, Jeff. Um, uh, It sounds like, you know, you've uh, got great leadership skills, if I may compliment you so directly, um, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, uh, and obviously you know your technology as well. So thank you for your time.
0: Very good, thank Thank
1: you. you. Okay, cheers. Well, that was interesting. I had no idea this rebate mechanism was such a big thing. Well, good luck to Homesphere and Jeff and his team in making this even easier for the builders and suppliers. Just shows really, there's all kinds of innovation happening in all kinds of nooks and crannies. You just don't know they're there until you get into that industry. Hence, one of the reasons why we do this CTO Confessions podcast, the idea is to kind of cross-pollinate ideas from different sectors from a technology perspective, helping leaders out there get ideas from other leaders out there in other places, if you see what I mean. If you want to know more about Homesphere, also get in touch with Jeff. The contact details will be found on this page. So just to clarify, Jeff's full name is Jeff Olin. And interestingly, just while I'm here, Olin is an interesting name. In Old Norse, it means ancestor's heir. In Swedish, it means to inherit. And in Middle English, it means holy. There you go, Jeff. You've got an interesting surname. And the company, Homesphere, can be found at www dot home, and then sphere.com. I encourage you all to find out more about what they do and where they're heading as a company. And maybe you know of other innovations in the construction industry. Well, if that's the case, please get in touch with me, TC Gill. You can find me at tc at it labs.com, or you can find me on LinkedIn under TC Gill. Also remember to subscribe to our CTO Confessions podcast and IT Labs newsletter where you get regular tech articles and invites to IT Labs webinar series. URLs for this can also be found at the bottom of this page. We are consistently creating material to create, support and nurture a community of tech leaders out there. And of course, if you want to know more about IT Labs and what we do, including our Teams as a Service service, please don't hesitate to get in touch. As mentioned in the intro, please think of us like tech leaders' favourite off-the-shelf service, providing quality, high-performing teams off-the-shelf with a wide breadth of skill and knowledge. So thank you, folks. Look after each other and keep safe. Wishing you all a good day or evening wherever you are in the world. So from everyone here at IT Labs, live well
0: and prosper.